Hey, good morning, Oakland Heights Baptist Church. Glad that you have joined us. Before we get started in God's Word, I uh, just want to make a couple of uh, announcements to our church family. I know a number of you are tuning in from around the country, and so glad you've joined our Oakland Heights uh, streaming, and uh, you obviously can come in later and check us out on podcast as well. For our church family, just want to be uh, send you a careful reminder that uh, today is the last day to vote in our digital church conference. Uh, if you are part of our church family, you can go into our website, pick up the banner there at the top of the page, uh, sign in, and uh, if you will refer to your membership letter that you receive, the password will be there, and you can type in that password and go in to vote. We're voting uh, through midnight tonight and uh, on receiving the CARES Act uh, PPP uh, program, uh, that will help our uh, furloughed and uh, workers, laid off workers during this coronavirus time. And so many of you have already participated. And we just want to say thank you for that. I know it's kind of an inconvenient time for us all to have to make church decisions. Pretty important for our church family. So if you have not had the opportunity to vote, church family, uh, zip in there and get that done. Also, just want to talk a little bit uh, about the incredible... Uh, outpouring of support. Uh, these last two weeks, so many of you have stepped up your ministry, your financial support, your contacts, and uh, I'm just really on kind of a, it's been a real tough two-week period. Many of you know there's been some challenges, some challenges in our church family with some health issues that I'm deeply saddened about. I was at a funeral yesterday for a, f a former member, but I'm just so encouraged today that uh, so many of you are just, I mean, how does Tiger Woods uh, describe it, A-game? Uh, many of you are bringing your A-game. Uh, and just thank you for your financial generosity during this time. Uh, thank you for the teams that are showing up on Thursday down at the Salt House. Uh, the need for food in our community is overwhelming right now. And just working that drive-by food distribution drop-off. Uh, so many of you are just doing the extra things, checking on our homebound members, those that are sheltered in place. And uh, we're just uh, excited about in the next few weeks coming out from underneath this. And with that in mind, we start today a whole new sermon series that will carry us into the summer. Uh, my to-go book throughout much of my life, when there's been really challenging times, has been, I guess, arguably the oldest book in the Bible, and that is the book of Job. And so beginning today, I'm going to be taking you through some incredible lessons uh, that God just generated through that text, through many, many chapters that have spoken in my heart during different times of heartache and tragedy. And uh, whether it be a family today that's struggling with stage four cancer and someone that looks like they have very little hope, whether it be uh, some of our church family today that are in a furlough situation, some that have completely lost their jobs, so many are facing devastating, challenging days. And the book of Job throughout really uh, the biblical text period of time from the time it was put together and written and distributed has brought uh, year after year of incredible scriptural doctrine and teaching. And uh, we're just going to be calling uh, this series The Mystery of Misery. And today we're just going to get started looking at the first two chapters. Let me, as we get prepared to look at God's Word today, let me encourage you to do something from wherever you may be viewing us from today. Uh, 
If you're in between meetings and ch- you know, catching us on podcasts, grab your phone and pull up those first two chapters of Job. We're going to be looking at a huge amount of Scripture. If you're at home with us today, streaming live, I want to encourage you, grab an actual Bible and turn to Job so that you can make quick references because I'm going to be moving in a hurry. Uh, we're having to pay this cameraman, Josh Tom, uh, Thomas, back here by the hour. So I want to be sure I get him out of here as quickly as possible. And uh, uh, as we get started, I'm just going to have a word of, of, of prayer, asking God to lead us during this time. And then we're going to jump right into the text. I'm so excited to be able to share it with you. Lord, we just ask that you would take these next few moments and that you would use the power of your word to minister into every one of these situations that our hearts find ourselves in today, whether we are just lonely, whether we're discouraged, whether we are searching for answers financially, whether we're battling something from a health standpoint. Father, we know that right now our nation has so much adversity, so much misery, so much affliction of different problems and different challenges. So, Father, fresh on our hearts is this question about misery and suffering. What does it mean and how does that all fit in? And, Father, I just pray today that as we just get started in this new series, that just as you have used this book throughout the years to speak into my heart, that you will just use it again to refresh me and that you'll refresh our church body with the power of your word. So, Father, as we impart that word today, that your Holy Spirit would go before us, with us, and in us, and through us to do exactly what you desire in our heart through the power of this text. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you've got the word of God there. And today I'm going to be talking about reintroducing us to this incredible character by the name of Job. We know many things about Job. There is a number of things that are unknown as well. But today, I'm just going to be, have time to talk about two introductory things about Job's life. First of all, I want to kind of talk to you a little bit about Job's affluence. Job's affluence. And as we begin reading in Job chapter 1, and I hope you've got your text open, we're going to be, uh, uh, begin reading in verse 1. I just want to mention some things about as we are introduced to this Im- incredible character. Uh, it's important for us to remember that he was a real person. I have on my bookshelf uh, a book entitled, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? It was written by a Jewish rabbi. Early in his book, he makes this statement, it's obvious that Job was not a real living person. And I just want you to know, nothing could be further from the truth. Job, it not only gives us the location of where he lived, it gives us so many, so much historical data, it becomes very apparent that Job was a real living person. Now, I just want to mention some things about his affluence. We know that he had great faith. Verse 1 says, in, in the land of us, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. Immediately, we see some things about his faith. He was blameless. That refers to his character. It speaks to more of who he is. And then it said he was upright. That refers to his conduct. That really is referring more to what he did, what he does. And then I love this word in the Hebrew language 
the Bible says at the end of verse one, he shunned evil. That, 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 term mean, uh, that term in the Hebrew language means to turn off or to be turned off. Here was a man that was so righteous that it turned his stomach to even think about sin and disappointing his heavenly father. That's how devout Job was. He was a man of great faith. Look in verse two, he also had a great family. The Bible says he had seven sons and three daughters. Maybe you're asking in this moment, Pastor, how do we know it was a great family? If you'll go down to verse number four, we get a little better idea about this family. It tells us in verse number four, his sons used to hold feasts. It tells us about the relationships in their homes, it says, on their birthdays, and they would invite their, their, their three sisters to eat and drink with them. It says something about the incredible chemistry of his children. He had a great family. In fact, Verse number five, look at it with me. When, when, when a, a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children has sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And the Bible says this, it's interesting. This was Job's regular custom. What an incredible, passionate dad about the family. He had a great faith and a great family, but he also had a great fortune. The Bible tells us in verse number three, and he, uh, and he owned, listen to this, incredible wealth. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And then it says, on top of all that, he had a great number of servants. The Bible then says at the end of verse number uh, three, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Man, Job had no money problems. Not only did he have incredible faith and family and fortune, but verse three reminds us of something else about him. He had great fame. This word greatest in the Hebrew language carries the connotation of heavy or weighted. It's not suggesting here that Job was a obese man or a physically large man. It's suggesting that when he spoke, he carried great weight. People listened when he spoke. He had great fame. But the Bible also tells us that he had great favor. Over in Job chapter 31, verses 16 through 22, it talks about how generous Job was. What great favor he found in the eyes of all those that were needy. In chapter 31, verse 16 and following, it begins to outline how he took care of orphans, the fatherless, those that were destitute, person after person that had need, Job took care of. Here's a man that we're introduced to that has all of this extreme wealth. He has affluence. But in one day's time, we find out that Job, in one day alone, goes from a prince to a pomper from a hero to a zero, from a billionaire to a bum. He had lost everything. And I think it's important for us to note that Job didn't just lose everything because of something he did. He lost everything because of what he did right, what he did righteously. And can I just suggest to you that this begins to inch a little closer to a very important rule for all of us to remember. In life, Life is not always fair. In life, life itself is not always fair. 
You know, when you think about our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he suffered immensely for no reason at all other than he needed to be the atoning sacrifice for us. He had done no, no wrong. He was sinless and spotless, but yet he suffered immense adversity and misery. Outside of the Lord Jesus, possibly Job suffered as much as any other man in all the Bible. But I wanted to note that with you, Job's affluence. But there's a second thing I want you to see with me as we are just reintroduced to Job today, and that is Job's adversity. In your Bibles, let's look in verse number 13, because I want you to see how he had a lost fortune. Even though he had all of this affluence, he lost it all. Look down in verse number 13. The Bible tells us one day there was a knock at the door and Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine and the oldest brother at the bro oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job. Can you imagine that's knock? And, and, and he said to Job, hey, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were gazing, uh, grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servant to the sword and I am the only one who was able to escape to tell you that fortune began to dwindle down. Listen to verse 16. And while he was still speaking, another messenger. It's as if there's another knock at the door. Another messenger arrives and he says, Job, the fire of God fell on the, from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I'm the only one that's escaped to tell you. Can you imagine those two devastating knocks? But the Bible says, yet a third knock comes. Verse 17, and while he was still speaking, another messenger came and he said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. And they put the servant to the sword. And I'm the only one that has escaped to tell you. Immediately, Job's adversity we began to see stems from this lost fortune. But it didn't stop there. In verse number 18, we began to see how he not only loses his fortune, but he loses his family. Notice verse 18. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting, drinking wine at the old, oldest brother's house. Verse 19, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. What an incredible loss. One day, Job not only finds out that all of his things are gone, but now he finds out that many of those that he loves are gone as well. What a devastating knock in one day. What a tough adversity to face, one unfolding after another. But if you'll turn with me quickly over to chapter two, look in verse seven, he didn't just lose fortune and family, he lost his fitness as well. In fact, verse number seven tells us this in chapter two, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Verse 8, and then Job took a piece of broken pottery. He scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. That's all Job had was just a broken piece of pottery to scrape himself. 
You get over there a little later in Job and you find out he didn't just lose fortune, family, and fitness, but he loses his friends. In chapter 19 and verse 14, the Bible says that these three so-called friends that had been trying to take up residence around him have departed. They've left. You know, that's one reason I felt so led for us for these next several weeks to talk and teach and study and dwell on the book of Job. Because here's a man that his sunshine has turned to rain. His joy has turned to pain. His blessedness has turned to brokenness. He was, went from insulation to isolation, from happiness to heartache, all in one day, and without doing one single thing wrong. I would just suggest to you that as we think about for a moment Job's adversity, that that, that adversity was activated, first of all, by a satanic force. We would ask at this point, Pastor, why, as we're reading, and why would such a thing happen? And we'll address that in just a moment at the end of our message. But I think first we need to address the question, not why, but how did this occur? And that it was activated by a satanic force. Go back to chapter number one and look carefully with me at verse number six. Because you see, these, these verses speak to us today as we have challenge and adversity. Why is this happening? Why is the coronavirus? Why is it here? Why are so many people out of work? Why are so many people devastated and hurting? And we read in chapter one and verse six, listen to what the Bible says. One day the angels, they came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came with them. Wow. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? It's interesting because the Bible says Satan responds to the Lord in verse 7. He answered the Lord and he says, I've been roaming throughout the earth. The King James says going to and fro. Other translations, in fact, the NIV says going back and forth on it. You know, that's an important thing for us to be reminded of. As we think about these words, we're reminded that the devil is very much restricted in his power. It says he was moving back and forth, to and fro. It reminds us that the devil is extremely restless, much like a two-year-old toddler that goes to and fro and about looking for anything that he can get involved in. We know John 10 says that Satan's whole plot, his whole plan, is to do what? To steal, to destroy, and to kill. That's what Satan is all about. He's looking for the ability and the opportunity to bring heartache and trouble. But to encourage you today, I want you to remember this text reminds us about some important things of how limited Satan really is. I want to remind you first that Satan does not have the presence of God. The Bible says right here in the text that he's going to and fro. We know our Lord is omnipresent. He is in all places at all times. But Satan is restricted. He can't be in Russia and the U.S. at the same time. He may have minions there may be demons in different places, but Satan himself can only be physically in one place at a time. So often we think, here's God, here's Satan, they're on some type of level plane. And that couldn't be further from the truth. 
our Lord is omnipresent. I remind you, Satan does not have the presence of God, but he also doesn't have the perception of God. Keep reading with me. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless. He's upright. He's a man that fears God and he shuns evil. What a fascinating statement. Here we get a great idea of what's going on with God and Satan. We, we notice immediately it's God that holds the ultimate power. He is the very one that is suggesting to Satan. He has an insight into who Job is. Notice Satan does not know intimately about uh, Job's heart. Only God knows his heart. God knew the devil, but the devil doesn't really know God. We know the perception of God is so much greater than Satan's perception. But there's something else I want you to see. Look in verse 19. Satan also doesn't have the power of God. Verse number 9 says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge, verse 10, around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spared throughout the land. You know, we're reminded, aren't we, that Satan had done all he could to get to Job. It's interesting, Satan had tried to get to Job, but the Lord had put a hedge of protection around him. Satan had tried to hurt him. He had threw all kinds of things at him, but nothing stuck. And we're reminded that the very demons can attack, but they cannot ever touch us without the permission of God. I made a notation here. Psalm 34, 7, one of my favorite verses, reminds us that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. That's right. The Lord, the angels themselves encamp around those that fear him and he always delivers us. And then when we see in verse 9, we're reminded, does God, does Job fear God for nothing? What an incredible moment. It's a question that you and I are going to be grappling with over these next several weeks. Do we follow God for nothing? It's a sobering question that I've asked myself a number of times over the last couple of weeks. Would I still serve the Lord if no one responded when I preached? Would I really continue to be a faithful or try to be a faithful servant of the Lord if he took certain blessings away from me with nothing in return? Satan brings this question to the Lord in verse number nine, as if, hey, man, you're protecting him. You've, I mean, the guy feels obligated to you, Lord. I mean, you've given him sheep, you've given him flocks, you've given him servants, you've given him a great family. Of course he's going to worship you. Of course he's going to trust you. Of course he's going to serve you. I just remind you that many people think the central theme of the book of Job is simply why do bad things happen to good people. But I want you to understand that's not the central theme of Job. The central theme of Job is why are godly people godly? In other words, will you and I serve God for nothing? A few months ago, I headed down to a restaurant maybe you've heard of here in our city, a restaurant called Luby's. I, I used to laugh at my parents. 
I would laugh at the older generation that would go to Luby's. Because, you know, as a younger person, I was more of a fast food kind of guy. But uh, now I find myself maybe once a week, maybe once every couple of weeks, I'll stop by Luby's to get a to-go. And on this particular day, when I slipped into Luby's, I always kind of walk through and preview the line as I go down to take my tray. But on this particular day, as I was previewing, previewing I noticed there was a long line. And uh, I, I'm going to say there's probably 15 or 20 people in the line. And the people that I was going to get immediately behind in line, it, it appeared that there was a family of three. I'm going to guess gentleman maybe in his early 30s, a lady about the same age. And it looked that they had maybe a, uh, it, it was a boy, but I'm going to say he was probably four. I'm not great at guessing ages, but we're, we're going to go around three or four. And as, as we stood there waiting, line was kind of slow and the little boy was a squirmy wormy. And he was getting into everything, pulling on his mom's pants, went over there and was trying to pull up a sign, one of those uh, advertising signs of the special for the day. She scolded him and got him back. And finally, uh, the husband really wasn't paying any attention so much. The dad wasn't. He was kind of looking at the food and looking at the line, looking at different things. But mom had her full attention, this little boy. And finally, she had just had enough. So she just yelled out to him right there in front of me, would you just straighten up? Would you straighten up and be good? And I was amazed. A little boy turned around to her and said, uh, I will for $5. And immediately his mother looked at him and said, why, why aren't you like your dad? Good for nothing. And uh, I just stood there for a moment not knowing how to process that. Why aren't you like your dad? Good for nothing. Now, I don't think she meant to say her husband, his dad, was good for nothing. That's just how it came out. What she meant to say, I think textually, was, son, why aren't you just willing to do the right thing for nothing in exchange? And it, isn't that really what's being offered up here in a challenge between Satan and God himself? Here's my servant in adversity. I want you to watch him, Satan. He'll continue to serve me. Satan's position is very clear. No, he's not going to continue to serve as I afflict him. He only serves you for the $5. He only serves you for what you give. So from the adversity standpoint, you and I begin to see something very important about this adversity. It is clearly activated by this satanic force. But I want, to, I want to share one other thing with you today before we close. This adversity was allowed also by a sovereign father. Look with me in verse number 11, because we see as Satan afflicts, as he begins to afflict, he does so first of all around those possessions, doesn't he? The Bible says, once God had given his permission, look in verse 11, chapter 1, but now the Lord says, you can stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Look in verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, uh, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. So first we see he was restricted, Satan was, to just the things that Job had. But that doesn't last very long. Over in chapter two, look quickly with me to verse number four and following. The Bible says this, uh, Then skin for skin, Satan replied, 
A man will give all that he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh. The Lord now allows Satan to strike the very flesh of Job and his bones. And he will surely curse you to your face. And verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, very well, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Isn't it something that Job never knew on this side of earth, what was going on behind the scenes? You and I are given that privilege and opportunity. We're able to have the whole canon, the whole text of the Bible. We're able to recognize and see behind the scenes. It's kind of like in a play or a theater situation where they have in parentheses, things are going on off stage. You and I have that opportunity, but oh, Job, as he's going through this adversity, as he's going through these three knocks, the loss of his things, as he's going through these knocks of losing his family, now he's losing his fitness and his health. He's losing it all. But in the midst of it, we're reminded something very, very, very important. It brings us to the question that's circulating around our world today. It's a thought that is very prevalent today. As we look at all the evil, all the misery, all the suffering, all the challenges, we see small children dying of this virus. We see how brutally the senior adult population in our country is being robbed of a few more days of their lives. And with all that evil that's going on, I hear so often in our culture today, different networks, different media accounts, those that have now proclaimed once again and resurrected this idea. See, we told you, they either would say there's no God or they would suggest if there even is a God, I mean, I mean he's not much of a God at all. With all this misery and all the suffering and the very mystery of misery itself, if there really was a God, would he ever let this, this type of thing go on? And if there is a God, how very feeble he must be. And I would just suggest to you, as people would even suggest that, I beg to differ with everything in my heart. Because you and I recognize from this very text, we start to see a picture, a broad spectrum picture of all that is going on with Job, with God, and Satan himself. You see, when I see evil and suffering, when I see misery, when I see tough things that I can't answer, it does not tell me that there's no God and that if there is, he must be a feeble God. No, this doesn't tell me that at all. Adver adversity and misery tell me not only is there is a God, but he is such a great God that he, he, he's able to allow evil to exist and yet he still has the power to turn it into something good to benefit those that love him. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says this, And then Job's wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Wow. Man, what a wife. And then in verse 10, the Bible says, He replied to his wife saying, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he says. Two of the most profound moments in Scripture when the wife makes this observation, hey, let's throw up our hands 
and just curse this God. And then that second moment when Job responds by saying, if we, do we not have enough trust? Do we not have enough faith that we're willing to accept and have faith and trust in God in the good times and the bad? You see, you and I have got to learn some very important principles as we walk through this series together. Part of this mystery of misery is that you and I have got to understand that God disposes and dispenses whatever will, his will would be to bring glory to his name, whatever that may be. And like it or not, you and I have got to understand that God doesn't just comfort the afflicted, but God afflicts at times the comforted. Like it or not, God is going to bring some good in our lives at times. And at other times, he's going to allow some adversity. He's going to allow some misery. And you may ask today, well, pastor, why would that be? Why do we have to have adversity and challenge in our life? I remind you that God's greatest interest is not in your happiness. His greatest interest is in your and my holiness. And with that in mind, you and I have got to remember and times like these, we've got to rest in the very faithfulness of God, knowing that he's too wise to make a mistake, that our God is too loving to be unkind, and that he's too powerful to be denied. And from my heart to yours, as we walk through some very tough and challenging days, I just want to remind you that behind all suffering is the very purpose of God. Beyond all suffering is the very praise of God. I want you to know that in these difficult days, Becky and, and my prayers go out daily for you, for our church, for our nation, and for those that are hurting in the world. I look forward in the coming weeks for you and I, one step at a time, to learn more from the incredible life of Job about this mystery of misery. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the good times and those days of challenge. And fathers, Father, in these crazy times when there are those that continue to suggest, see, we told you there's no God. What, what a more foolish, crazy statement. We know that you're here. We're aware that even in the midst of calamity and suffering and adversity and misery, in those moments, nothing invades, attacks, or touches our lives without your very permission. You remind us of that over and over. You have pulled back your heavenly curtains to allow us to see some insight into truths that we can see in incredible, colorful pictures. Picture form. Job in the middle. Satan on one side. Our very God on the other. And Father, in these coming weeks, I pray that whether we're challenged to shelter in place for more time or we're released on a very soon day-to-day -day basis, Father, whatever comes, that we will be faithful enough to trust you, our Lord, in the good times and the days of challenge. In these things we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.